For me, grit is not stopping till you get to a solution. Right? There's a lot of work that feels like things come in one side and you process them and do them out the other side. That's the non-grit version in my mind. The grit version is we have a problem. We need to get to a solution here. And we don't stop until we find that solution. And the folks who can continue to focus on what the outcome is, whether it's this 15-year mission we have or whether it's signing a certain customer and not letting anything stand in the way of doing that, that's great to me. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. As a disclaimer, Dana is no longer at Impossible Foods. He is now the SVP of commercial at Plenty. Dana, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So I like to start these things off by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. And so I'm going to read your background to you as defined on LinkedIn, and please fill in the blanks. You got your BA in poli-sci and international studies from Yale. You then went to be a consultant at Axia Limited for about three years. You then went on to co-found, possibly concurrently, you tell me, a nonprofit called In The Running. You spent three years doing that. Then you became a senior consultant at Dahlberg Global Development Advisors for two years. You then went on to go get your MBA at Stanford GSB. Then you went on, I think, probably concurrently to your MBA, you went to Walmart Mexico as an associate, which was kind of your MBA internship, I assume. Then you went to PayPal. You became the GM of cross-border Latin America, basically international payments. And you spent four years doing that. And five and a half years ago, you started at what was at the time a very small and unknown company called Impossible Foods. You started out doing business development. Then you went into become the director of commercialization. You spent two years doing that. Then you went on to be the VP of business operations. You spent about a year and a third doing that. And then most recently, VP of sales. What did I miss? I think you got it all on there. In the meantime, got married, had a baby, and some other fun stuff. I love it. So I was actually listening to a podcast the other day called Acquired, and they did a deep dive on Eventbrite. And the founders of Eventbrite, Kevin Hartz and his wife, so he actually was at PayPal doing some of the international payment stuff. Did you guys overlap at all? We didn't. I was I was very focused on our Latin America business. So when I joined PayPal in 2011, right after my MBA, we were still running Latin America out of San Jose, actually. And what we did over the succeeding four years was build up the offices in Brazil and Mexico and build up what's called cross-border trade, which is both directions. It's both Latin Americans buying stuff online, mostly in the United States and China. And likewise, uh, if you wanted to go to Mexico on vacation and wanted to pay a dive operator, for example, with PayPal, that would be the the other direction of cross-border. It's a very interesting business for PayPal, actually a really good use case when you don't want to send credit cards or copies of your passport internationally, and still a very robust business for them today. Yep. So I want to spend a bunch of time today talking about kind of your run at Impossible Foods. I'd love to profile your story there because I think it's just so interesting. You've been there since basically the genesis of the company and certainly pre-product, definitely pre-taking a product to market. Just to qualify like what Impossible Foods is today, Co2 did your most recent round valuing the company at $4 billion. You have 
quite the eclectic smattering of celebrities also included into this cohort of investors, Jay-Z, Trevor Noah, Paul George, Katy Perry, Serena Williams, Zed, Questlove, et cetera, et cetera. You were named the fourth fastest growing brand of 2019, right behind White Claw and a few other pretty fast growing brands. And in the early days, GV, Kosla, Bill Gates were all very early investors. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's all right on the investment stack. We've been fortunate to be blessed with, with a bunch of investors from the venture all the way up to the institutional level into the celebrities who really believe in our mission and, and what we're doing. In terms of the founding of the company, the, the company was actually founded four years before I arrived in 2011 and was very focused on science for the first four years, for five years before we went commercial, really spending a lot of time focused on what it is that makes meat taste like meat and how we could recreate that from plants. And then I joined in 2015 about 12 months before we went commercial. And so when you say it was four years before you joined, it was science. I was reading up on the composition of the firm before you joined. It was literally like 95% of the staff was scientists in a lab creating this thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. When I joined, I think there was about 60 people there, the vast majority of whom were scientists. We had my colleague and friend, Nick Halla, who had been an early business hire, we had a lawyer, we had an office manager, an accountant, and a few other folks. But for the most part, it was scientists, who many of whom have PhDs, mostly from biochemistry and biology and chemistry backgrounds, who were in the lab working on, on that tough question of what makes meat meat, what makes it so delicious. And probably important, I assume most listeners do know, but for those that don't, can you talk about what Impossible Foods does, what your mission is, and what the plan is moving forward? Sure. So our mission is to eliminate the use of animals in the food system by the year 2035. So 15 years from now, we envision a world where the meat we eat is produced directly from plants. As you may know, today, the way that we make meat is we feed grasses and grains to pigs and cows and chickens, and then we slaughter them and, and turn them into the meat that's delicious that we eat. And you know, meat is a great product. Meat is delicious, it's affordable, it's nutritious, and it's ubiquitous. So we're competing with something that already does pretty well, except on, a, on some pretty important dimensions. One, it's not very sustainable. It's a pretty big threat to the environment. It's obviously not good for the animals that are involved, and it has some human health impacts as well. So our thesis is people don't love meat because of the way it's made. They love meat because of the benefits they derive from it. And if you can give them those benefits while making it a different way, that's a winning proposition for the consumer. So that's the mission that Pat Brown, who founded the company in 2011, has been working on for almost 10 years now and has recruited quite a big team, quite a bit of investor money to the problem. And we launched, as you mentioned, in 2015, 2016 rather, and have been growing ever since. So talk to me about the value prop. As I was doing my research on this episode, I was trying to think back to the episodes that we've done. And we pretty much have the heads of sales of some of the most high-flying, fast-growing tech companies, all of them pretty much exclusively SaaS companies. And so the value prop is really clear. The cogs are really clear. The margins are really clear. The go-to-market is relatively consistently defined with certainly some nuances among them, but it's all software-based. And so there's a common thread that you can pull on to define a framework for how you should think about this business. I didn't necessarily have that. So the value prop for an investor is pretty crystal clear. Massive TAM, meat market, giant tailwinds, people starting to care about their health a lot more. And this space hasn't really changed in, I don't know, 100 years or whatever. It's basically been the same thing. We've been deriving our meat from the exact same places. So for a consumer, 
what are the main drivers towards why is this company valued so highly? Why are you growing so quickly? What are the main drivers for a consumer to actually get in here? Is it just health? What else is it? Is it trendy to do this? What is it that makes this thing so interesting from a value prop perspective to a consumer? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the insights we had early on was people like meat not because of how it's made, but in spite of how it's made. So when I speak at conferences, we'll ask sometimes, ask everyone in the audience to raise their hand who's a meat eater. And you know, 95% of hands go up. And then you ask, who in this audience likes meat because it comes from the body of a dead animal? And most people put their arms down, right? Because in most cases, people try to forget how their meat is made, right? They kind of, they may have seen a, a video that was unpleasant at one time and they kind of, they try to distance themselves from that. And that's a really important insight because it means that if we can deliver a product that delivers the things people love about meat, that it's delicious, that it's nutritious, that it's affordable, that it's ubiquitous, but without the liabilities that come from the way it's made, we believe we have a, a winning proposition. And that's been the idea from the very beginning that we don't want special treatment. We just want to compete with the incumbent product on the terms of the incumbent product, providing something to the consumer that the consumer will prefer over the incumbent product in the long run. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to talk about what that means how you build a competitive business around all these incumbents, because I think distribution is probably one of the largest things that you have to tackle, and that's a big part of your story. So I'd love to just start by talking more about your story. April of 2015, you started there running business development. How did you find that opportunity? Like, Tell me more about your story getting in there. Yeah, so I actually had had my eyes on the company for quite a while. My business school classmate and friend, Nick, who I mentioned, had joined the company early on, and he and I were having dinners every quarter or so. And I was hearing more and more about the very interesting science that was coming out of Impossible Foods back in 2013, 2014. And as the company got farther along on the, on the product development cycle, there was an opportunity to join and start to think about how we would build the business out. And when I joined, there wasn't really a, a timeframe for launch. And so one of the first things we did was put together, what does it look like to take this to market? There's obviously lots of ways you can take a food product to market. You can start in grocery, you can start in restaurant, you can start upscale, you can start downscale, you can do massive tastings or influencer events, or you can try to do the traditional route of paid media and marketing. So there were lots of choices we had to make, and none of them were really defined when I started. And a lot of what we did that first year between when I started and when we went commercial was try to put some decisions around some of those choices about how to go to market. So in previous episodes, Carlos Dilatore, the CRO of Trip Actions, we talked a lot about like he keeps hitting these winners over and over again when they're, at the time, very clearly not winners. And one of the things that he had mentioned is, look, I'm not necessarily the world's number one technologist, so I have a team of people around me that help me evaluate these decisions specifically on the technology, and I have faith that I can go ahead and build out a go-to-market depending on if the technology has the right product market fit. You had mentioned that you'd heard some really interesting science coming out of what Impossible Foods is doing. You're not a scientist. And so how did you evaluate what does interesting science mean to you at that time? You know, it's partially evaluating the science and partially being aligned with my own personal mission. So evaluating the science, I'm not a scientist and I only had a fraction of the understanding, frankly, of, of the scientific prowess that is inside the company. But I met Pat, our founder, and as many people who've met Pat, was very inspired by him and both his career, but also the way that he talked about the problem that he was, he was trying to tackle. I think the second piece for me is it's been important to me throughout my career to work on problems uh, that affect every human being on the planet. And there's only a handful of systems in, in my mind 
food, money, energy, transportation, healthcare that touch every person. In other words, every person is, is a consumer in that system at some point during their life. And, and in the case of food and, and money and energy every day, right? And in the case of food, three times a day for a lot of people. The other thing that's interesting about food is there's another 2 billion people on the planet who are producers into that system. So when you think about the ability to work on these big systems, it has a couple great things about it. One, if you make a change there, you can make a change that impacts every human being on the planet. Two, from a business standpoint, being able to have every consumer, every, every human being on the planet be a potential buyer is obviously a great business opportunity. And then with specific to food, what I saw was of all those big systems, food and ag is one of the most antiquated. You know, we are, from a pure technologist standpoint, we are using the same production system, meaning feeding plants and, and grasses to animals and then eating the animals. We're using the same technology system we used 10,000 years ago. That's not true in a lot of the other cases we've been able to innovate. And so what I saw at Impossible when I first started uh, getting to know the company and getting to know Pat was here's a system that impacts every human being on the planet. And here's an entrepreneur who is working on creating a fundamental change to a technology we've used for the last 10,000 years straight. And those two pieces together seemed like a winning proposition to me. So walk me through Dana and the scientists era. You come in and it's six months away from the product feeling like it's ready for market. So again, one of my other guests, she ran sales at Tableau from zero to like 200 million. And she talks about the missionary sale where you basically knock on a bunch of doors and you just kind of figure it out. Again, I understand that in the context of a software business, trying to find other tech companies that are forward thinking, forward adopters. How do you think about that in this context for who may be an early adopter? Who do I need to talk to? How do I even build a set of criteria for what that profile of restaurant company firm might look like? Sure. You know, I'm a big fan of the crossing the chasm framework. I think that especially with something that's as new as this, your initial sales really are to your true believers. And what a true believer looks like is an important thing to define because it might not be exactly who you think it, it was. For example, our true believer was not a vegan or a vegetarian. That wasn't who we were after. As a matter of fact, our true believer early on were the innovators. They were the people who saw themselves at the forefront of multiple areas, right? And so some of the first chefs we went to, Dave Chang in New York and Tracy Desjardins out here in San Francisco, were folks who spent a lot of their career pushing the envelope in whatever domain they were focused on, right? Tracy was one of the first really fine dining French chefs out here in San Francisco. Dave Chang has done a ton with elevated street food and really pioneered that concept. And so we targeted them because although they had never really talked about what we were doing, plant-based meat, they'd spent their careers really adopting new ideas and doing things differently. And sure enough, they saw the wisdom in what we were doing and signed on relatively early. What restaurants, by the way, do those chefs or restaurateurs correspond to? Sure. Dave Chang uh, runs the Momofuku Empire in New York. And then Tracy J. Jardin's flagship restaurant was Jardinier in San Francisco, which just closed after a 20-something year run, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. So you sign partnerships with them. Help me understand what a partnership means. Like this isn't like a, hey, paid up front annual contract. What does that first deal or two compositionally look like? Sure. Backing up a bit, one of the things that helped guide our go-to-market strategy was getting very specific about where our target consumer was before we talked to them and where we wanted them to be after we were done with them. And that sounds like a really simple thing, but it's actually something we worked on for months to get that problem statement very specific. And where we landed was that 
Her target consumer was a meat-eating carnivore who had had a bad experience in the past with a veggie burger. So they'd been to a barbecue and someone had thrown, you know, Morningstar burgers on the grill and it just wasn't what they were interested in. And so they weren't particularly inclined to try something new in this space. And where we wanted them to be when, when we were done with them was to believe that this thing was different. And so once you defined it tightly, how you go to market starts to reveal itself. So we said, okay, well, does launching at Whole Foods help convince this person that this thing is different? Probably not, right? Does launching in the Google cafeteria help us convince this person that this thing is different? Probably not. Does launching with a high credibility meat forward chef help us convince this person that this thing is different? Now we're onto something. And so in addition to the, the two folks I mentioned, the third chef we launched with was actually in Houston was a barbecue guy in Houston. And that was done very deliberately to say, look, this is for meat eaters. This is someone who is a connoisseur of meat who's not trying to pull one over on you that your traditional veggie burger is something that is a good substitute for meat, but that our, our burger, our impossible burger, meets their exacting standards. So that was how we thought about who we approached. And the reality is, is when you look at a given city, the chefs in that city, there's actually a relatively small number of chefs who influenced the food scene in that city. So in a place like San Francisco, I bet most people who think about this stuff could identify 10 chefs who really dominate the way that the city thinks about food. In New York, it's a little bit more, but in, in Chicago, in Houston, in Miami, it's really a small handful. And if you identify who those folks are, you can try to get to them and then their influence kind of cascades down onto everybody else. We at one point had you know, in those kind of mafia shows where they're showing who the Don is and the, mm. the people who, who are influenced by the Don. We, we had one of those police station like photos with the lines <laughs> and who we needed to get to and who we thought would be most influential. And we broke the problem down from this big, oh my gosh, how do we convince people to change their minds to actually we need to go find these three people in this city and these two people in this city and those five people in that city. And then that becomes a manageable problem, right? You can then go attack it. And to your question of, was a partnership mean? It didn't mean anything super formal, actually, in the beginning. It really meant the chef signing on to serve this product in their restaurant. There was no long-term commitment. Didn't pay you. Didn't pay us. Early days, my job was flying around the country with a little electric griddle that I bought at Walmart and walking into kitchens and conference rooms and office buildings with a cooler. I had a little Martha Stewart cooler with Impossible Burgers in it and cooking an Impossible Burger, sometimes in front of the world's best chefs, which is a little bit intimidating. And this was, at the time, just burgers, right? Use case number one, burgers. Use case number one, burgers. Okay, so you spent 10 months flying around the country making impossible burgers on a griddle, and you signed on your first few customers. And I say customers in the context of you got a few restaurateurs who had cachet within that restaurant scene or within those respective cities' restaurant scenes to be able to say, okay, we're going to bring on Impossible. We're going to serve an Impossible burger. It's going to live next to our existing beef-based burger, and it's going to have an option or a substitute as an Impossible burger. Is that right? That's right. And we often ask them to keep whatever vegetarian alternative they had on the menu. And we emphasize this is not a replacement for your vegetarian product. As a matter of fact, early days, we saw a bunch of customers send back their Impossible Burgers thinking that they had been given the wrong thing, mm -hmm. thinking they'd been given a beef burger, which that was a sign of success for us. So during those 10 months, that's what you're doing, right? You're getting your initial, 
you know, ideal customer profile. You're outlining like, okay, who's a good fit? Is this use case resonating? How do we even bring something like this to market? Do the consumers even like this thing? So walk me through what then happens. I'm using the framework of your jumps within Impossible to contextualize how you go to market because you were basically the point person in all of that unless a scientist put the test tubes down and flew out with you. So then you went on to be the director of commercialization. And at the time, what happened? You took the team from like zero to 20 salespeople. Who was that? And did you say, okay, we have something here. Yeah. I think we've defined product market fit. Now it's time to solve a little bit for distribution. And what might that look like? Uh, tell me more. So early days, one of the insights I have about a very disruptive company like this is there's no such thing as a marketing strategy or a sales strategy or a customer service strategy. It's really a commercial strategy, right? It's a go-to-market strategy at the beginning because when you're introducing something totally new into the market, what you choose to introduce, who you choose to sell to, how you choose to talk about it, what size the product is, what color it is, all that stuff is intimately linked. There's no way to say, oh, this one thing is the job of the marketing team and this other thing is the job of the sales team. This other thing is the job of the creative team. And so that's why we called the team early on just commercialization. And it was what went on to become eventually the marketing team and the sales team. And, and they were, eventually we grew those teams and we split them out in a more traditional way. But the way that I crafted the team early on was making sure that we all sat in the same place. You know, we, we had a bullpen at the office back when we could go to the office because so many of these decisions were linked to each other. So when you think about the rollout we did, we aimed for those high credibility chefs. We saw that we had some product market fit with them. We then parlayed the work we'd done with them into increasingly larger and larger customer sizes. So the next group out was what we call better burger chains. So these are the kind of 10 to 30 unit chains like Umami Burger out in California or Bear Burger in New York that provide an elevated burger experience. And they were a great, great target for us early on. And so that was the next stage out we went. And then we went another stage out to small more traditional casual dining chains. And each time along the way, we're building on what we had done before. At the same time, I'm building the team, as I mentioned, really cross-functionally. So my first sales hire was actually an actor from LA, because back to that point of crossing the chasm, the people you're selling to, you're trying to sell to true believers. That's as much a question of being a true believer yourself as it is traditional sale. We brought in a really great creative person who could help define the brand's voice from the very beginning. We brought in some folks who knew about restaurant marketing, selling to restaurants, right? Because at the end of the day, we have to sell to both the consumer and the restaurant buyer, the chef. And we had all of, all of us sitting together in a bullpen to help define that early, really first year of rollout in a very integrated way. We brought on a customer service person, again, from, from Uber, because we felt that being able to talk to and, and very quickly respond to our consumers on social and on our phone lines was an important part of how we went to market. And so the takeaway for me is the reason why we called it commercialization early on and not marketing or sales was because it really had elements of all these things intertwined and it wouldn't have made sense to separate them in the early days. So one of the things that I was thinking about was this notion of recruiting and going from zero to 20 and even hearing you talk about like you recruited the actor, or you recruited these specific folks. And I think the point you were making was that they believed in the mission for what Impossible does, right? They don't necessarily have the 10-year resume from Slack, Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera. They understand exactly what the team is about 
and why you're doing it. And I think that becomes really compelling when you can kind of speak from the heart when you're trying to sell. So one of the thoughts that I had was you look at companies like Tesla and SpaceX and some of these extremely mission-oriented companies, some of the most effective recruiting companies in the world. Would you agree with that? I just feel like even hearing you earlier define what the mission is by 2035, I think it is, to eliminate all meat and what that means for the planet and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I imagine that just becomes such a weapon for you. And a lot of people talk about hiring salespeople, hiring any person that identifies with your mission. The reality of it is most people didn't have this core mission or value to sell a CRM or a communications platform or whatever it might be. How did that impact the way that you thought about recruiting, how that made it easier and and the ethos that you look for in kind of hiring these people when you go from in the commercialization period? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And, And you absolutely hit the nail on the head. You know, true believers are important both at the beginning from an employee standpoint, but also from a customer standpoint. So focusing just first on the employees, you know, when you're kind of a young ragtag group of folks who don't have real true product market fit yet, obviously the people who are going to take a chance on you tend to be the folks who really believe in the mission. And from the very beginning, one of the best things about Impossible Foods is I've never worked at a company that has such a clearly defined mission. Every single person at the company can tell you what we're about you know, from the moment they wake up in the morning till they go to bed. And so we definitely attract a lot of people simply because they believe in what, in what we're doing. And many of the early people I hired, all the early people I hired, they were attracted to the mission of what we were doing. And they found the fact that people had done it before as an exciting part of the job, not a liability to the job. So the fact that everything had to be figured out, that was what they were after, not something that needed to be avoided. Likewise, in the customer base, the first few customers we had, you know, people often ask, how do you get that first customer? How did you, you know, whether it was the first high-end restaurant or the first chain? And really, we had true believers at those customers. So you know, Dave Chang and Tracy Desjardins were true believers. Like They were personally invested not because they'd made some great calculation about what this meant for their business, but because they cared as human beings what we were doing. Same with Euripides uh, Palakinos, the CEO and founder of Verberger. He was personally invested in what we were doing. And I think that's, you know, going back to crossing the chasm, that's really important in those early days. It's not some grand plan or grand calculation of the ROI of a certain, it's really finding human beings who care a lot about what you're doing to both work for you and to be your customers early on. Do you feel like when you have that kind of alignment for the employee as well as the customer and the mission, maybe in the context of the employee, do you feel like it gives you an extra drive, energy? I get nervous and I'll use the actor as an example. You know, I can't qualify based on past performance. And again, past performance is not an indicator of future success, but a lot of the time, it means that there are certain qualities that I may look for and can certainly qualify for within that person, right? Maybe they're driven, they're motivated, they work hard, they're financially motivated, whatever it is. I don't know, I guess the only thing that I get nervous about, and I haven't been a part of a mission-driven company to this degree, so I'm not sure, is that does that mission basically put everything else into overdrive and help you overcome all of the things that the qualities that you can't necessarily qualify for based on previous experience? Yeah, I think the mission does a couple things. One is it grants you room to make mistakes and recover from them, whether it's internally or or with a customer. Frankly, like when you have those true believers I mentioned, you know, we were a young company, we screwed up tons of times, right? But having personal investment from folks allows us to smooth over those bumps. 
And then I think with the employees, it depends on what you're qualifying for. If what you're trying to use as the indicator is past results selling this particular product, Sure, you're not going to be able to do that because, frankly, no one's ever sold this product before. So there's nobody out there who I who I could qualify on that. If what I'm trying to qualify for is someone who I believe is good at convincing others of their viewpoint, well, there's some other things you can look for for that. Other signals you can look for, even if they're in different domains, where that person has been good at convincing someone. Maybe it was selling a script to a, a director, mm-hmm. right? But that's sales, and you know, it's a different domain, but it's still sales. And when you mix that with with the mission that creates a really good early stage roadmap for success. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, you're not a salesperson. Your background has nothing to do with sales, right? It seems to have worked out pretty decently for you. And I think the mission can really carry that weight for a while. So then you went on to be the VP of business operations and you did that for a year and three months, roughly. And this was in January of 18 to March of 2019. And so you built out this team. You've started to go into the, medium scale burger restaurants, the umami burgers. And this, I assume this team, their North Star was to go after those types of customers, right? Continue to cascade down from the upper echelon of the market, these high-end chefs into what then becomes the tastemakers for specifically burgers to curate around your burger use case, right? And continue to double down on, on that specific use case. And I think that was the team's goal. Okay. Then you went on to be the VP of BizOps and on your LinkedIn, it says you founded a team focused on the intersection of strategy, operations, and data. We focus on metrics, decision-making, and raising money. What the hell does that mean? So what became apparent in kind of 2017, 2018, think about the life cycle of the company was we'd launched in 2016. We'd opened our production facility in Oakland, 2017. We were really starting to scale up. We'd gotten distribution into food service distributors in 2018. So things were starting to fire on all cylinders. And what we found, what we kind of all looked at was the company's organization hadn't really kept up with the commercial growth. You know, this is a challenge that a lot of companies have, growth stage companies have. I've heard it referred to as the awkward teenager phase, where your limbs are kind of a little too long for your body and you don't really know how to pull it all together. And so what I did with the BizOps team was pulled together some folks, hired some new folks, and really focused on what are the internal processes and systems we need to be successful as a company? What's our management team look like? How often should they meet? Should they have offsites? How often should we review our results and metrics as a company? What results and metrics should we measure? There's all sorts of things that, although it sounds crazy if, you, if you've worked at a big company your whole life because they, they just exist, at a small company, someone has to go to find those. Someone has to decide, make all those decisions at some point. And so that's what we focused the BizOps team on in, in 2018. It also happens that to be a good team to assist with raising money, because you tend to have a viewpoint on many different parts of the company, which are exactly the kind of questions that investors ask, right? They ask, tell me a little bit about this, tell me a little bit about that. And as a BizOps team, we had a pretty good understanding of what everyone was doing, as well as the, the objective function, right? The key things that each group was focused on and how we knew whether or not they were achieving their goals. And then just so that I understand, was sales at the time or the commercialization team, marketing sales, whatever you want to call it, was that also still rolling under you? Or did you put a functional manager there to take care of that? And you said, all right, I need to step away from this for a while. We need to get our house in order. And then you come back to that at some point. Exactly. The latter. So you did a pretty good job raising money, started focusing on metrics. And I was reading an Inc. article in advance of this. 
they were talking about the Impossible Burger 2.0, which I don't know what the difference is between 1.0 or 2.0, but basically this thing launched and it started going crazy. And to your point, like the awkward teenage years, the Impossible 2.0 burger launched in early 2019 and quickly showed what happens when a company isn't ready for its wildest dreams to come true. So what does that mean? The difference between your awkward teenage years and any other traditional company that that I'm familiar with is very different because what ends up happening is you become a victim of your own success in a very, very interesting way because you're not just building software that you have to necessarily scale horizontally. And of course, there's infrastructure and technology prohibitors that happen that you need to like unblock. But this is literally, you don't have enough space in your plant. There's cogs associated with where you source your ingredients from, how you source them, where you get them from. Tell me about that time the Impossible Burger launched at the time. Were you still doing biz ops? It seems like that was the tail end of that. Tell me more about that. Sure. We've hired a lot of folks from the tech world. And one of the things that that group tends to struggle the most with when they come to Impossible is in the fact we're shipping real products, not just real products, physical products, but perishable products, right? And coordinating your supply and demand is a huge job. And anyone who's worked you know, with physical world products knows that, and especially when you can't just stick stuff in a warehouse if you get it wrong because it expires. And so this is actually one of the core challenges for the company, which is with the scale of the mission we have to eliminate animals in the food system in the next 15 years, we're constantly going to be either supply constrained or demand constrained, right? Where each side of the house is pushing against mm-hmm. the other to grow faster and faster and faster. And so what happened in early 2019 was we'd been working on a new product. The R&D team had come up with this great new product that was gluten-free, allowed you to cook it on a barbecue grill, and it was really a fantastic product. We had a great coming out party at CES where we launched this product at CES, first food product ever launched at CES, took down the house, won all the awards, and restaurants just started buying it and buying a lot of it, which was fantastic. And uh, at the same time, you know, we were working to scale up our production. We had a relatively well-publicized shortfall in the summer of 2019 where uh, we weren't able to keep up. And we've addressed that. We moved on from that. And we have a great team in place now. We actually started working with a third-party OSI group up in Chicago who's been doing this for years and allows us to really scale to much greater heights in the future. Okay. So then concurrently, you launch this product, CES happens, the team starts to do pretty good in the burger cascade, okay? So they start at the top, then they go to these next sets of burger chains. And then if I'm you, I'm thinking, okay, like what's the crown jewel that we need to get into? Burger King. Okay, like that makes a lot of sense to me. At the time you were running, and again, I don't mean to rewrite history here, so you tell me, but call it a 50-ish store pilot with Burger King. It goes incredibly well. So a bunch of things seem to happen at the business at the same time. One, you launch the second 2.0. You weren't expecting this demand. You do it at CES. It goes crazy. You get all this publicity, all this marketing. It's like when a company launches and their website goes down. You just had no idea it was going to happen, right? Then you start to actually find distribution in other places beyond just these burger chains, right? And then, and this is kind of transitioning into like now you're back into the VP of sales role, right? And all hell starts to break loose a little bit. And maybe that's why you probably transitioned back to the go-to-market side. Again, I'm not trying to rewrite history, so you tell me here. But basically, it went from Burger King being like, all right, this is cool, to holy crap, this is incredible. In fact, this might be a competitive edge in our business, and these things are selling like hotcakes. So Burger King executives came out to the Bay. They were ecstatic about rolling it out. They said they want to roll it out to every store, basically. 
and all these other things are also concurrently going on. Did that contribute to like the call it acne of your awkward teenage years? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty fun time. And actually, talk about Burger King for a bit. You know, we did a test, as you mentioned, we did a 50 store test in St. Louis starting on April 1st of 2019. And we started to see the data come back from that and it blew us all away. And getting into a fast food restaurant had been my dream since I started at the company. To me, fast food is the way that we know this is working because fast food is the way a lot of America eats. There's actually a great stat from the CDC that something like 40% of 18 to 35-year-olds have been to a fast food restaurant in the last 24 hours at any given time. So when you think about how America eats and how you want to have an impact on the food chain, you can't do that really without being in fast food. So we got that data back from Burger King in the early days of that St. Louis test, and it was blowing us all away. And it felt like this amazing moment where there was only a handful of, of us on the whole planet who knew that this was working, right? That mass market consumers were interested in this product at the price point we were offering, a price point where everyone is making money from the franchisees to Burger King to us, and how exciting that was, because that meant that this wasn't a niche product, right? This was a product that had real mass market, product market fit. As you mentioned, it, you know, all this stuff was happening at the same time. And as is often the case, though, these kind of transformational moments in companies give you a chance to fundamentally change the way you do things instead of doing incremental changes. So we had the ability to fundamentally change the way that we thought about production. So that's what I mentioned. We, we started working with a third party and allowed us to scale much more rapidly. And it all works together, right? The more you scale, the more you can bring down your cogs, the more you can go aggressively after these types of large customers. On April 22nd, your CEO sent a company-wide email explaining that surging demand, along with the new Burger King rollout, was putting the company in existential peril. We will need to increase production at least sixfold over the next several months and tenfold by the end of 2020. Yes, you read that correctly, he wrote. So you get that email and you're in a sales job, right? And so (laughs) if I'm you, I'm thinking, okay, my job is to sell. And we literally don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the supply to support what we're selling. Like what was going through your head at this point? Was the general spirit of the company like, we might have just become a victim of our own success. Like our success may have just tipped us over. What was going through your head at that time? At that time, actually, what was going through my head was, I want to be part of the solution. So we actually had several folks from the sales team go to the plant and work shifts. And when I'm talking about working shifts, you know, this is 12 hours in a 30-something degree Fahrenheit box. So it's hard work and major respect to all the folks who do this as part of the company on a day-to-day basis. But there were many of us who spent time from the sales team in the plant being part of the solution. And, you know, I don't think I was ever worried that it was going to tip us over. At that point, we actually had a pretty robust company. We had a decent amount of cash in the bank. And, you know, as any startup, we've hit roadblocks along the way. We certainly hit a lot at, at Impossible prior to that. And that's part of the exciting part of it, right? The highs are high, the lows are low. And I never worried that it was going to tip us over. We actually kept selling through that. We had to change some launch dates. We had to work closely with customers. We actually relied heavily on FedEx for a while to expedite product to our customers and to overnight product to our customers. There was a time when I was working the loading dock, taping up FedEx packages to go out, but that's all part of the ride. It's incredible. Helps to have a mission. So let's fast forward this to today. And this is a hell of a story, by the way. I love it. So first it was the top of the food chain. Then it was the medium chain burgers. Then it became Burger King. And then... Fast forward to today, it's in Walmart, 
It's in Starbucks. It's in Trader Joe's. So this is a stupid parallel, but one of my guests was the CRO of Atlassian. And the way that Atlassian's business works is that it had a product called Jira. And that was their Impossible Burger. It took that Jira product to really start to build the brand. And then once you have trust with the consumer, once you have the requisite credibility that you need, that it tastes good, all these things, you're off into the races and you can start to go horizontally, which it seems like you're solving for now with distribution across just more than just QSRs, fast food and burger chains. Now you finally got into Trader Joe's. You were able to go through that distribution channel. Now you're starting to do direct to consumer. You're actually shipping impossible burgers straight to consumers. Tell me more about that. What have you guys really unlocked? Is that a fair characterization of, of what's kind of happened most recently? Yeah. So if, if you go back to our original go-to-market strategy back in 2015, it was to convince people that this thing was different, right? And so we did that by going to these high-end restaurants, high-credibility restaurants. But we also had our brand on the menu. And that was something that was really different, right? Usually when you go to a restaurant, the only thing that's branded is the beer, the wine, the condiments, and the soda. You don't usually know where your steak comes from or your potatoes or your green beans. And so what that did was that enabled us to really build a consumer movement at the same time that we were doing what is essentially a B2B sale, right? And that was all deliberate. We knew that by going to a restaurant, we would give consumers a chance to engage in trial, right? When you're at a restaurant, you care less about getting in and getting out and more about enjoying your experience. And you have a built-in habit of looking for the, the special of the day or trying something new. You and I could order a burger. You could order a beef burger. I could order an impossible burger. We could cut them in half and split them. So it really lowers the barrier to trial. And at the same time, you've got a server there who can explain, who can answer questions for you, really a guide to your meal, who can, who can talk to you about it. And what that enabled us to do was really build a brand that people had a deep understanding of what the brand meant, what it stood for, such that when we started to go into retail, we launched in, in retail, I mean, grocery fall of last year with Gelson's and Wegmans and Fairway. And then we've rolled out to about 10,000 retail locations, including the ones you mentioned, Walmart, Trader Joe's, Kroger this year. And that meant that by the time we went into retail, people knew who we were. They knew what to look for. Versus if you start in retail, you have to build your brand either by the 12 inches of shelf space you get from the grocer or by investing heavily in marketing so that someone knows before they walk in the store what they're looking for. So you're correct in saying that going deep in one area allowed us to then expand channels. Uh, it allows us to expand products. We now have a sausage product on the market. That's the product that's with uh, Starbucks, actually, as a, as a breakfast sausage product. And it allowed us to start expanding geographies as well. We just launched Canada on the back of the success here in the US. Just tickle my curiosity here. Do you still eat meat? I do. So I'm a meat eater. I have certainly changed my diet. I eat actually a lot more fish. My wife and I eat mostly fish, but, but I definitely eat meat. And in some ways, I think it's instructive for what we're doing, right? The meat eater loves meat. And even someone like me who knows all the downsides that are associated with meat for the environment, for our health, for animal health, it's something that I still do because there's so many of us who get daily pleasure from, from eating meat. And it's something that I keep in mind when I think about talking to a chef or a consumer, just how closely associated the benefits of meat are to people's identity and to their, their daily habits. You know, in the early days, when talking with chefs, it was really helpful, frankly, to be a meat eater, right? Walking in as a meat eater allows you to have credibility with that person, that you're not some crazy person from California who's moved off the grid, but really that you share a lot of the same things they care about and allows you to relate to that person who you're talking to. Totally. 
In terms of competition, and I, I want to put this in context, the mission is to replace animals in the food supply chain by 2035. In order to do that, you're going to have to double the company pretty much every year and, until you do that, right? And you know, you're at that point kind of competing against yourself. Can you actually pull that off? And, you know, go through your midlife crisis and all the other things that are going to come with that. You know, Kleiner was a Series A investor of Beyond Meat. Great investment for us. As I think about that mission, though, I don't think of like a Beyond Meat as a competitor. Similar to Elon Musk doesn't really think of other electric car manufacturers as competitors. Like he actually wants to push forward the entire system. And if Tesla can do that and they can open source their batteries or whatever that might be doing to evangelize that, he knows the competition are the incumbents. He knows the competition is the the lawmakers and the constituents that have all of these reasons to fight you from winning. So what do you think of as competition there to achieve your goal for 2035? Yeah, I think that's such an important point, Jubin, that you bring up, which is our competition is the incumbent industry, right? It's the animal food system. And all the plant-based folks and eventually the cellular ag folks all put together right now make up something like one or 2% of the consumption of animal-based products or what would be animal-based products. So we would be insane to pit ourselves as competing with with some of the other folks on the plant-based side when there's this massive pie to go after that's out there. So that determines how we think about everything, right? That's how we think about R&D. We're not trying to be better than the next plant-based product. We're trying to be better than the animal. It thinks about how we, we think about sales. It determines how we think about recruiting. It determines how we think about all different parts of our, our company and what we're going after. And that's one of the benefits of a mission-driven company as well, right? The mission isn't just beat XYZ company. It's actually achieve this goal, right, that we want to achieve by 2035. And that's why we're in business. I end these shows with the same two questions. I keep saying two questions, but it's really a two-part question for the first one and then a follow-up. First one, what does the word grit mean to you? And how do you or your teams apply it? For me, grit is not stopping till you get to a solution. Right? There's a lot of work that feels like things come in one side and you process them and do them out the other side. That's the non-grit version in my mind. The grit version is we have a problem. We need to get to a solution here. And we don't stop until we find that solution. And sometimes that solution comes in one hour or one day. And sometimes that solution comes in months or even years. And the folks who can continue to focus on what the outcome is, whether it's this 15-year mission we have or whether it's signing a certain customer and not letting anything stand in the way of doing that, that's great to me. If you want to get a hold of Dana, Plenty is hiring, dworth at plenty.ag. Dana, I really appreciate your time, man. Likewise, thanks. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at JubinMir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.